Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this Christmas season we do rejoice in the birth of Jesus Christ, this child who brings salvation. We rejoice in the humility of the Incarnation. We rejoice in the great love of God that sent his only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This Christmas season, Lord, we rejoice in the good news of the gospel, of the grace of God. What great mercy is ours in Christ, displayed to us in the birth of this baby. So, Heavenly Father, this morning with Elizabeth and with Zachariah and with Mary and with Elizabeth and Zachariah's neighbors and family, we do rejoice. We lift your name on high and we rejoice for you are worthy. So, Heavenly Father, our desire is that your name would be honored in all that we say and do in this hour. Even as we meditate on these truths, this passage of Scripture that draws our minds back to that very first Christmas and the birth of Jesus Christ. Challenge our hearts, Lord. Work in us. Move us with awe and wonder this morning at the great love of you our God. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, next Saturday, this coming Saturday, is Christmas Eve. I don't know if you guys have Christmas Eve traditions or not. But Christmas Eve brings with it a sense of arrival, does it not? Christmas is here. Christmas Eve is the clear sign that Christmas has arrived. And yet, even still on Christmas Eve, there's still a sense of unsatisfied longing, right? It's Christmas time, but Christmas is still not quite here. Children are out of school, many adults are off work. But it's not still Christmas Day. Maybe you have some Christmas traditions that you do on Christmas Eve. Maybe you watch a movie. My family would watch Miracle on 34th Street, the old one, the black and white one, uh, on Christmas Eve, every Christmas season. Maybe you guys watch a movie. Maybe you have hot chocolate and Christmas cookies. Maybe you're one of those families that allows your kids to open gifts on Christmas Eve. It's a travesty. But if that's you, that's fine, I guess. Maybe you wrap presents on Christmas Eve. Maybe, hopefully, you go to a Christmas Eve service. Christmas Eve is a special day. It's a time of celebration. And yet, every single one of us recognizes that the celebration on Christmas Eve is not about Christmas Eve, right? It's the celebration of what Christmas Eve represents. It's the celebration of what follows Christmas Eve. In fact, it's in the very name, is it not? Christmas Eve, the day before Christmas. Christmas Eve prepares us for Christmas. Christmas Eve is the day where if you've not yet wrapped presents, it's your last chance Get ready. The day is coming. 
If you need to clean, you have people over coming over. Christmas Eve is the day to do that. Right? If you need to cook, you better go to the store on Christmas Eve because it's not going to be open Christmas Day. Get the materials you need. Christmas Day is a day of preparation. It's an exciting day. In fact, even our Christmas Eve service, it's a service that calls us to prepare our hearts for what is coming, for Christmas. It reminds us that what Christmas truly is, a celebration, so that we wake up Christmas morning thinking rightly. It's the very purpose of a Christmas Eve service, to direct your thoughts, to guide your thoughts, to draw your thoughts to what is coming. Last Sunday morning, we were in Luke 1, verses 5 to 25. It's a passage where Gabriel comes to Zechariah. He comes with good news that Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, though formerly barren, she will conceive and bear a child. And yet this is not any child. In fact, he says in verses 15 through 17, this child, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Yes, this baby will be great. But he will point to one who is greater. He's a preparer. As Christmas Eve is a day of preparation for Christmas Day, so John has a ministry of preparation to prepare the way for the coming promised Messiah. John's arrival is an announcement to all the world. He is here. And so this morning, as we work our way through this passage, we will marvel with Zechariah, with Elizabeth, with their community as we look at John's birth and Zechariah's prophecy. The first thing we see in verses 57 to 66 is John's birth. And it begins with a time of rejoicing in verse 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered. It's been the nine-month process. And she brought forth a son. Where neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. This is a great time of rejoicing. Elizabeth, though once bearing, barren and now past childbearing age, Elizabeth has given birth to a healthy baby boy. Her years of mourning are past. Her time of shame is over. God has been merciful, miraculously so. In fact, that's what you see in the response of the family and the neighbors. They gather to rejoice with Elizabeth. They marvel at the great mercy of God towards Elizabeth. There's a recognition here that God is doing something. This is divine. This is God's doing. What mercy. What mercy. 
The reality is that they have no idea just how great the mercy of God displayed in the birth of this child really is. We noted last week that yes, this child is a sign of God's mercy to Elizabeth in answering her prayer for a child. God sees Elizabeth and God is ministering to Elizabeth. He's showing his mercy to Elizabeth, but that's not where God's mercy stops. It doesn't stop with Elizabeth. This child is also a testimony of God's great mercy to Israel and to the world. Through this child, God is doing something great. And so even this morning, we add our voices, do we not, to this this gathering of family and of neighbors. And we say, truly, God's mercy is great. It's a time of rejoicing, but it's also a time of faithful obedience. Yes, God has shown his mercy. And Elizabeth obeys. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. They would have called him. It's it's assumed here. The scene has shifted from the intimate setting of the birth of this child to the more public setting of the the temple. They've come to, to circumcise this still publicly nameless child. And there's an expectation here. They would have called him by the name of his father, Zechariah. It's assumed. He's going to be called Zechariah. In fact, it would have been expected culturally. A child would be named after a relative, normally a father or, or a grandfather. And yet in the face of their cultural assumption... Elizabeth stands up. No. No. He will be called John. He'll be called John. It's shocking. We miss a lot of the the, the shock in our day. We don't understand the the cultural setting and, and the assumption here. But you can see the shock even in their pushback, right? Our day is a lot the day in which we live, it's a lot less in your face, right? If someone, you know, you assume they're going to name their kid something and they name it something else, you don't go, no, you can't, you have to name it. Right? You just, that's a little odd, but okay. You know, you go with it. But this is so shocking, they can't let it go. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who's called by this name. In fact, they take it to the father even. They, they assume that Elizabeth is kind of going rogue here. That, that Zachariah can't can't speak. He can't speak up. So we'll speak for him. Elizabeth, you are wrong in this. Zechariah, what would you call him? Are you sure they're saying? So they appeal to Zechariah. And yet note Zechariah's confident answer. His name is John, he writes. His name is John. In fact, note, he does not say his name will be John or his name shall be John. He says his name is John. See, Zachariah recognizes that there is no choice here. This is not the naming of the child. For Zachariah, the child has been named from the time that the angel announced it to him. 
His name has been John. It is John. In fact, Daryl Bach in his commentary notes the progression in Zechariah from struggling to believe at the beginning of the chapter to confident faith here in John's birth. There's no question in Zechariah's mind. And what Daryl Bach says is this, Zechariah, even as an already righteous man, right, looking back to verse 6, even as an already righteous man, he learned to trust God's word even more. Brothers and sisters, you are never too old to learn. You are never too mature to grow. Are you willing to learn? Are you eager to grow? Even like Zechariah, this this righteous priest who grows, who submits himself to God's plan, who learns. May the Lord give all of us a tender heart like Zechariah, who here displays a godly, faithful humility. It's not just the humility and growth of Zechariah here that stands out, but really even in this passage we see the faithfulness of both Zechariah and Elizabeth in the face of societal pressure. Against custom, they stand their ground in obedient faith. You may say, well, you know, of course, it's easy. The angel literally showed up and told him what to do. Who wouldn't obey that? If God would show up and and speak to me like that, then yes, I would obey as well. Brothers and sisters, 2 Peter 1, 16-21, Peter tells us that in the Bible, we have a more sure testimony than even the word of a prophet or an angel Right here, in the word of God. You don't need an angel to show up and tell you, you have the word of God. And I don't want to push this too far here. But how many Christians in our day cave to cultural pressure in the most basic and foundational issues that the Bible clearly addresses? Issues of sex, Gender, gender roles, the sanctity of human life, marriage is only between a man and a woman. Our culture is pushing against us. And brothers and sisters, whether it is as simple as naming a child or the foundation of marriage, if God has spoken, stand where God has spoken. Stand fast on his word and do not budge regardless of societal pressure. It's a simple thing, the name of a child. And yet, they stand up against the pressure of relatives. And and we're in the season of holiday. You know the pressure of relatives. But they stand against that, that societal pressure, the push of their relatives and of their neighbors. This is what God has said. This is his name. May God give us boldness to stand on his word. I find it ironic here that the crowd marvels at Zechariah. It says he asked for a writing tablet. He wrote saying his name is John and they all marveled. 
as I'm studying this, I'm thinking, just wait, what's coming next? You think that's amazing? <laughs> the very next verse. And as immediately, Zachariah's voice returns. Immediately, his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed. You think that's amazing? Watch this. And I love that Zachariah's first words are praise to God. Not complaint. Not frustration. In fact, he doesn't shut up for the rest of the passage. It's all Zechariah talking. Zechariah's had a lot of time to marvel at what God is doing. He's had a lot of time to contemplate the angel's words. How sweet it is to finally speak the name of the Lord with loosened lips. Truly, God is great in mercy. Verse 65 to 66. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them. From standing confounded, marveling, to now overtaken by fear, the crowd stands in awe. You see, three amazing things have happened, three amazing out of the ordinary things have happened in this passage. Number one, an old, barren woman has given birth. The child is not named according to custom. And three, Zachariah's voice has returned. I mean, just imagine being there and seeing all of this. The phrase, fear came on all who dwelt around them, indicates that they are aware that this is God's doing, that he is in their midst doing something unique. It's the same idea that you see when the angel first shows up to Zechariah or, to, or, or even to Mary. When the angel shows up, there, there's fear that grips them. God is here. There's an awe, holy awe. That's what is happening here. It is clear. There's a statement here. God is doing something. Word is beginning to spread what started as a whisper moved its way to a rumbling, is now a spoken hope. God is at work. Already, even as a baby, John is preparing the people for something great. Even just at his birth and his naming, the people, their, their minds are engaged. Something here is happening. Anticipation is at an all-time high. And the hand of the Lord is with John. Indicates God's unique equipping of and working through John, even as a child. The Lord is keeping him. The Lord is guiding him. The Lord is at work through him for his purpose. So we marvel at John's birth. Next we see Zechariah's prophecy. See, the crowd marvels in verse 66, what kind of child will this be? Zechariah answers that question. What kind of child will this be? Let me tell you. 
This passage is known by theologians as the Benedictus. It's really, it's amazing when you look at scripture and how the Lord ties it all together. You see, upon completion of his temple duties at the beginning of Luke 1, Zechariah would have been expected to come out and deliver a benediction to the gathered crowd. Yet when Zechariah comes out, what's the problem? He's mute. He can't speak, right? He cannot deliver that benediction. He never had the opportunity. So now at the birth of his son with his loosened tongue and his neighbors and, and all those at the temple gathered around all these months later, full of faith and with a restored voice, Zechariah has the opportunity to speak a benediction of sorts to the people. And he begins by telling them of God's faithfulness remembered. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's visited and redeemed. It is done. It's complete. How has he done this? He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Zechariah begins here by looking at the big picture. As he rejoices in what God is doing, he backs up and he looks at the big picture and then he'll, he'll zoom in and get to John's role in this eventually. But right now, he's just looking at the big picture. He's praising the Lord with the expectation of total deliverance. In fact, as you work your way through here, there's both political and spiritual aspects to Zechariah's expectation. Salvation from enemies and salvation from sin. God is doing all of this. The people ask, what is God doing? And Zechariah answers, he is doing everything that he has promised. He has visited and redeemed his people. God sees us and he has come into us. He has, he has visited, he's redeemed us, he is here. He's at work. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. The horn of salvation. A horn is a sign of dignity, of power. An animal with a great horn, it, it looks powerful, but it's practical too. It is powerful. God has raised up this horn. He's raised it up in the house of David as he promised. This is the one who stands out in David's line, the one who we have looked for, the one who will fulfill all of God's promises, even as we saw two weeks ago as we worked our way through the Old Testament, building our anticipation. Zechariah here recognizes the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, verses 10 to 16, the Davidic covenant. God has promised one through the line of David, a great king who would conquer, who would rule forever, and he is here. God has provided him. But he doesn't stop there with the Davidic covenant. In verse 70, he speaks of those spoken by his prophets since the beginning. Who have since the world began. We saw that two weeks ago, did we not? As we traced this hope 
for a serpent slayer all the way back to Genesis 3.15 to the fall of man at the Garden of Eden. All the way back then, God promised, I will send one who will crush the head of the serpents. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. And since the world began, God has been faithful. Not only in 2 Samuel 7, not only in Genesis 3.15, but verses 71 to 75, Zechariah moves forward in history to the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. These promises that God gives Abraham of a people, of a blessing, of a land. Even references the Mosaic covenant of Exodus 19 to 24 and Deuteronomy 28. God's specific conditional promises to Israel. God is fulfilling all of this. I would spend more time and walk through these, but we just went through all these two weeks ago. Building our anticipation. And what we rejoice in now with Zechariah is looking back and seeing what God promised now God has done. Zechariah's present faith, his bold faith, it's filled with expectation based on God's past faithfulness. God has made these promises and God is fulfilling them. In verses 76 to 80, he recognizes God's provision. How is God doing this? And what role does John play in this? What great things will this child do? He will fulfill the expectations of Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, and Malachi 4, verses 5 to 6. John's responsibility is to go before and prepare the way for one who is greater. You, child. You will be called the prophet of the highest. I don't know if you can think back to holding a baby, whether it's yours or someone else's. You're holding a baby and you're looking at this thing. And if you've ever thought, like, what is this baby going to experience? Like, what are they going to do? What are they going to accomplish? Imagine being Zechariah and holding your son and knowing what God is going to do and marveling as you look at this little helpless thing, knowing God is going to do great things through him. You, child, you will be called the prophet of the highest. You will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. John's responsibility is to go before and John accomplishes this by preaching a message of repentance and salvation. You will go before, you will prepare the ways. Why and how? To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercies of God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John goes before and prepares the way for the one who will bring salvation by preaching a message of salvation. 
In fact, they're very tied together. While John prepares the way by telling of salvation by mercy, Jesus brings salvation by mercy. Jesus is the fulfillment of John's message. In fact, even here, as Zechariah rejoices in John and his ministry, he's also rejoicing in Jesus and the fulfillment of John's message. Zechariah is, is speaking almost as if this has already happened. Jesus is already here. Right? Salvation has already come. John is powerfully and inseparably linked to Jesus. Without Jesus, there is no power in John's message and no purpose in John's ministry. The power and the purpose of John flow into the person of Jesus Christ who will fulfill these things. So Zechariah looks forward. He's, he's recognizing God's provision in this child who will preach this message, who will go before. But in this same passage, verses 77 to 80, he's also celebrating the salvation that comes. The power of John's message and of Jesus' salvation is mercy. This is a gospel of grace, not of works. John will give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through tender mercy of God. Jesus will bring forgiveness of sins through tender mercies of God. He will bring salvation. The forgiveness of sins by mercy. God's favor on the guilty and undeserving with which the day spring from on high has visited us, or, or the sunrise. Like a sunrise, Messiah is coming. He is bringing light to those in darkness and life to those who are dead. Zechariah rejoices in the reality of John's message that salvation is here. That's the focus of all of this. That is what all of this is pointing to and leading to. Brothers and sisters, salvation is here. The sun is rising. Wake up and look. And I'd be remiss if I did not pause here and call you to repentance. Like John, if I did not point you to Jesus Christ. Maybe even this Christmas season, as we've worked our way through these passages, starting even in, John, in Genesis 3.15, all the way back at the beginning, and we've traced God's faithfulness to fulfill all that he has said. As we've looked at Luke 1 and, and what God has done through the coming of John, and, and even more what we're building to next week on Christmas to celebrate the coming of Jesus. Even mentioned here in Zechariah's song, Jesus who Zechariah's benediction, Jesus who brings salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. How? Through the mercy of God. Not by merit or works, but undeserved by the grace of God alone. 
And the question this morning is, have you taken hold of God's salvation by placing your faith in Jesus Christ? This infant who came, God in flesh adorned, born to die for your sins, to bear your penalty, that you may have his righteousness. The message of Christmas is a message of mercy and grace. The good news of the gospel is that salvation is here not by works, but by mercy alone. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Are you trusting in your own works? Do you think that that you can somehow save yourself, that you can earn God's grace? That's not grace. It cannot be earned. That's the whole point. That is why we celebrate the coming of this infant. It's all by grace alone. By God's mercy alone. The undeserved forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. If not, I would call you to repentance this morning. Won't you repent of your sins? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Won't you turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ in faith even this morning? In conclusion, have you ever noticed that things done last minute tend to be done poorly? Whether it's a paper at school, a proposal at work, or an anniversary celebration that sneaks up on you. As the old saying goes, to fail to plan is to plan to fail. The simple reality is that a proper celebration often depends on diligent preparation. Brothers and sisters, Christmas is coming. Prepare your hearts this week by remembering God's faithfulness, recognizing God's provision, and celebrating God's salvation with Zachariah and so many saints who have gone before But a passage like this not only draws our eyes back to the birth of Jesus Christ, but really, even at our our place in history, looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ, a passage like this draws our eyes forward to that. Zechariah's message is Jesus was coming. Our message is Jesus came and he's coming again. And he could come at any moment. And just as Zechariah and John are calling people to look to Jesus and place your faith in him, brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming again. With John and Zechariah, I would ask, are you ready? He's coming. The sun is rising. Are you ready? 
If you're here and you have any questions about Jesus Christ, you have any questions about salvation by grace, the mercy of God, I would love nothing more than to, after this service or even at the end to open a Bible to take you aside and to answer those questions, to point you to Jesus. Won't you come? Brothers and sisters, those of you who are here, who are in Christ, I would challenge you to see the urgent call of a passage like this. And with Zechariah and John, join the chorus of all the saints saying, Jesus is coming, repent. Call the world around you to salvation. Be faithful. And let the Lord work through his word. Jesus is coming. Salvation is here. Rejoice.